sure if we have any visitors in the audience that have no idea what in the world we are doing tonight. But James, don't put me on the clock till I explain what we're doing for for four. What we're doing tonight is we're having a debate, uh, as we discussed this morning, on instrumental music with the hopes of being able to come to some conclusion about what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is untrue. And so tonight I'm going to be taking the position of we should and we are allowed to have that in worship. So James, you can put me on the clock now in my 10-minute session. And I want to take it from the perspective not of the denominational world out there, but from the perspective of brethren who may have on their doors and on their sign a church of Christ that have gone with the instrument, okay? So we're not talking about the, quote, Baptist or the Methodist or the Catholics or whoever. I'm using argumentation from brethren in Christ who have gone this route. And so the premise would be Christians have New Testament authority to use mechanical instruments in their worship and praise of God. The key word there is authority. We have to have authority for what we do. And so after much prayer and after many years of study on this particular thing, I believe that the New Testament does give us that authority to do that. The two passages that I am pretty confident Michael will use to say we cannot use instruments, I believe actually grant us authority. Those two passages are Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16 and Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. And as I have them up there, you'll notice them very carefully of Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And Ephesians 5.19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. The word that gives us the authority is the word, the psalm you'll notice that Christians are commanded in both of these passages to use the Psalms. I want you to think about that for a second. From here in Colossians 3, we are to teach and admonish one another with Psalms. In Ephesians 5, we are to address, or as the other translations say, like the King James You speak to yourselves in psalms. And that word there that is speak or address is you make a noise. You utter. And so what we are commanded to do as Christians is to use the psalms to teach one another, to warn, exhort one another. That's our word there. And here, addressing, making sounds to one another. And the Psalms commanded that we use instruments. I want you to open up in your scriptures to Psalm 33. It's not just that the Psalms include scriptures. 
But rather, it is that the Psalms commanded that praise of God be given with instruments. So you'll notice in Psalm 33, and we don't have the entire time to discuss that and to talk about that, but I want you to pick up in verse 1 here. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Now the lyre is kind of like our harp. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with a loud shout. I want you to just think about what he just said there in verse 2. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. It's not L-I-R-L-I-A-R, but lyre. I don't even, I can't say that word. But here's the interesting thing about that. That word is used 13 times in the Psalms. It's used very frequently of I will use this in my worship, I will use this in my praise, I will use this, and not only will I use it, let the people praise the Lord with the lyre. I want you to go to Psalm 150. The very last psalm of the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Then go down to verse 3. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. And praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Like, you understand what he's saying there. He's not saying, hey, if you want to use a harp or you want to use a lyre. He's saying, use those things. Those are given for the praise and the worship of God. To which these things are mentioned repeatedly again in the Psalms. Consider the tambourine and the dance in Psalm 149. Psalm 149, consider verse 3. Let them praise His name with dancing. Make melody to Him with the tambourine and lyre. Like, this is what you're supposed to do. We're supposed to be up here dancing and playing the tambourine in praise of our King, of our Lord, our Maker, verse 2. You see how when we're told to address one another in Psalms, some of the Psalms tell us we should use these things. And I'd like to also say one thing about that. Is that these items are very specific, aren't they? We've got a ten-string harp. We've got a lyre. We've got a Flute, the pipes, there's one for pipes, right? So the very first thing that many brought in was an organ. Well, we have authorization for that. In Psalm 150 there, in verse 4, the last phrase is something with pipes. And oftentimes an organ or something along those lines. And so what I think you have is a lot of different instruments that are specifically stated there that we are to use in our worship to God. 
Last thing I want to point out. Christians are commanded in the New Testament to use the Psalms. The Psalms command that instruments, mechanical instruments, be used in our praise of God. Therefore, we have authority from God in the New Testament to use instruments in our praise and worship of God. I'm going to give you the extra two minutes and let Michael take it there. This is an excellent learning opportunity, as I think you can already see. I'm not going to take a lot of time to talk about that. I did this morning, but again, we're glad you're here. My uh, obligation is to try to follow the arguments that Wes made and to try to answer them. That's my, so I am going to try to the best of my ability to do that. First of all, I thought it was interesting that uh, Wes said the perspective he was coming from was that of brethren who had begun to employ uh, instrumental music. Now, actually, that's been a what I would consider to be a recurring problem uh, through the years. If we went back and we were to look at the history of the church and we were to look at what brethren have done, we'd find that when churches first, in the so-called restoration movement, when churches began to wholesale convert over to the truth and all of that kind of thing, for 50 years, roughly, and depending on how you, what part of the country you want to look at, but anywhere 50 to 100 years, there was not a problem at all with employing instrumental music. In fact, there were very scant references to people suggesting it, and then the first time that it occurred was in 1859 in Midway, Kentucky. What that means is that Brethren understood that a cappella music was the music that God has commanded us to go by. Now, that in and of itself is not authority. Just because a group of people have practiced it doesn't mean that, you know, it's right. We ought to, in every generation, we ought to reconsider. But I just want you to understand that traditionally and historically, that's not been the case. That churches of Christ did not employ it. Then in the later 1800s, some began to. Many people objected to that. There was a split in the church. If you've ever driven by and seen a Christian church or disciples of Christ... They eventually broke off, and instrumental music was one of the biggest reasons why. Um, we went another 50 to 75 years where no one was having a problem with it. And then in my lifetime, in my generation, and a number of you that are here in your generation, it began to recur again. It's not anything new. It is something that from time to time, even through the centuries, has been the case. Uh, people have understood God wants a cappella music are singing only, and then someone begins to suggest, no, it would be good to have instruments, and maybe using some of the very arguments that Wes has used. Let's do open our Bibles, if you will. Open up to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Wes talked a good bit about Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, and I'm sure we will focus a lot of our attention on these verses. 
Now, Wes looked at the word Psalms, and I'm going to look at that in just a moment. But I want you to consider Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19 with me. And I'm going to try to find a slide that I want to go to. I've got some things written down here that I want to... This is a little newer way of doing things for me, so bear with me for a second here. Anyway, if you're looking at... Testament, two of them 
quote from the song. One of them's in Romans 15. Hold your finger there and go over to Hebrews chapter 2. And you'll see in Hebrews, and I'm going to start down in verse 12 of Hebrews 2. Look down at verse 12 and notice where the psalm, this is Psalm 22, that is quoted. Verse 12 says, I will declare thy name among my brethren in the midst of the church, of the congregation, will I sing praise unto thee. Now, hold your finger there. Go back to Romans 15. In Romans chapter 15, if you look down at verse 9, it says that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Quoting from Psalm 18. For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. Now, here's the point. Many of the Psalms, like Psalm 33 that Wes quoted or Psalm 150 that Wes quoted, Many of those psalms, they sing and play upon an instrument. Some psalms do not. Some of them only say sing. You can go back and look at Psalm 18. You will see that he only says sing there. He does not say sing and play upon an instrument. Psalm 22 says sing. It does not say sing and play upon an instrument. Don't you find it interesting that of the many psalms, that say sing and play, that the two and the only two that are quoted in the New Testament happen to be two psalms and two verses that do not include play. Now the question would be why, and I'm going to try to answer that. And the reason for that, and please bear with me, this is a awkward, but the reason for that is that the law The law has changed. When we look at the Psalms, we are to use the Psalms. We may talk more about that. The Psalms are for use, and there are proper uses of them. But it does not, I mean, one minute, okay. So it does not mean that we go back and employ everything from the Psalms. We can find a long list of things none of us would agree should be done today, whether that's animal sacrifices or going out and making war against your enemies or whatever it might be. The law has changed. And we have to acknowledge that the law of God has to be viewed as a will and testament. That the Bible proclaims for itself a major change. We may get more into this. It was something that was anticipated by God. It was something presupposed. And it focuses on a major change in history. The coming of Jesus. The coronation of him as king and lord with his own law. The crucifixion of Jesus, who is pictured in Hebrews 9 as the death of, you know, as the testator, and there certainly was the death of the testator. The New Testament is the last will and testament of Jesus. It is an amended will of God. It's an amended will of God based upon circumstances having changed. Just like you might go get a will, but if you have, all right, if you have major changes, then you would amend the will. Thank you very much. tell you. It's tough. Some of the things that he said is really, really difficult to deal with. Specifically that making melody in your heart to the Lord. I, I agree wholeheartedly that the heart is an instrument. I would not argue that in, in one sense at all. But what I would argue, and I understand his point about Hebrews 2 and Romans 15, I would say, well then what am I supposed to do with Psalm 150? 
that commands me to use that? What am I to do with Psalm 33 that commands me to use that? What am I to do with Psalm 98 that commands me to do that? And yeah, the law has changed. But I want you to notice something that instruments were accepted before the law of Moses. I want you to go to Exodus, the 15th chapter. I've often wondered, like, when did instruments come into their worship of God? And in Exodus, the 15th chapter, the children of Israel have just come out of Egyptian bondage. And they have crossed the Red Sea. And we have in chapter 15 of Exodus the song of Moses. And they sang this song. And notice that in verse 1. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. I want you to go down with me now to verse 19. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea... The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. I would suggest to you, if I understand this passage correctly, that Miriam was singing to the Lord while she was dancing, shaking her tambourine, just as Psalm 150 and Psalm 149 have told us to do. You see, that was before Moses ever received the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. You see, this is predating the law of Moses. This is what God has wanted throughout. And so my question then would be, what do we do with those psalms that indicate using the instruments? And I say... You know, I actually thought that Michael would use this passage, that the instruments were commanded from God, and so I'll bring it to your attention in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, that when David instituted some singers and some players, we would see that they were set up and they were directed by the Lord's prophets, okay? I want you to notice another passage in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And maybe Michael will deal with that one in a second. But 1 Samuel chapter 10. Before there is ever a king in the land of Israel, Saul is anointed as king in chapter 10. And to confirm that he is going to be king and that this is going to happen, I want you to notice what he is told by the prophet. So pick up in verse 4. He said, they'll greet you and they'll give you two loaves of bread. Then verse 5, there's another group. Uh, Let's continue reading there. I lost it there in the shadows. So we'll pick up in verse 5. And after that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, which, by the way, if you have a footnote, means the hill of God. So you're going to come to the hill of God, where there is a garrison or a, a place of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place, with harp, tambourine, flute, 
and liar before them prophesying. I want you to just see what the prophets were doing in the days of Saul. They were using the lyre. They were using the harp. They were using tambourines. They were using flutes on the hill of God offering Him worship. So my question then is, when did it all change to the point where these things that were once acceptable became no longer acceptable and that were acceptable before the law of Moses? That would be my thing. I believe that we are to sing. But I believe we not only are to sing, but we have the authority to use these various instruments in honor of God to go along with our singing. Michael, it's all yours. All right. So let me try to get a little better grasp on some of these charts, and I'll try to answer the question. Let me start with Wes's final question. He asked the question, when did it all change? Well, that's where I was a moment ago. It all changed right here. It all changed when Jesus Christ came to earth. He was the Messiah. The the Old Testament throughout, that is Genesis through Malachi, focuses, pictures, looks forward to Jesus coming. And presupposes a lot of changes. Let me just throw out one for you. David in Psalm 110 receives from God by inspiration a psalm that says, records a conversation between God the Father and Jesus. You are going to be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's a thousand years before the Aaronic priesthood passes away and Jesus can be high priest. It always presupposes it. So when does it change? It changes with Jesus. It changes with his coming. It changes with his death upon the cross. It changes with him ascending into heaven upon the throne where he now has all authority It changes with the death of the testator that issues in a new law. In fact, let's just run through very quickly. The law has been fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus said it himself in Matthew chapter 5. I didn't come to destroy it. There are proper uses for the Old Testament. And the New Testament records five different passages that explicitly tell us how to use the Old Testament. But he did come to fulfill it. That is, to fill it up. And when he did... He said, nothing would pass away till everything was fulfilled. But he said, I came to fulfill it. And that's why he launches into a number of verses where he says, you've heard it was said of old or it was like this in the Old Testament, but I say it's different. And it's going to be different under my law. You can look at Colossians 2, verse 14, where Paul talks about with the death of Jesus, the nailing on the cross of Jesus, there was also the nailing on the cross of the handwriting of ordinances. And it's very clear in that passage he's talking about the Old Testament and all of its commands. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, the law of commandments that was against us in Ephesians 2 and verse 15. Or if we went to the book of Hebrews, we'd see he's the mediator of a better covenant, better than that Old Testament covenant. In chapter 8 and verse 7, if that first covenant had been without fault, and it wasn't, it was not complete, then no place would have been sought for a second. To replace it is the idea. With all of these things about Jesus and all of these facts that are now so. Saying a new covenant, again in verse 13, makes the, old, the, the first covenant old or obsolete. 
or finally and very clearly in chapter 10 and verse 9, with the coming of Jesus, the body that was sacrificed on the cross, and you can easily see it in that context, he takes away the first covenant that he may establish the second. So if we continued on with that, if we were just continuing... No, no, that's not going So let me try to get this quickly. Um, right there is where I want it. We might know Right there is what I want. Wes asked a question about the idea of the, the commands to use the instruments preceding the law of Moses. And he is exactly right about that. People have praised God upon instruments. They did praise God upon instruments before the law of Moses. But I want you to understand. Very clearly in Galatians 3, the promise, the time of the promise, which includes all that time before the law of Moses, was added to the law. And they become one entity. They become one ent entity that passes away with the coming of the gospel. That was all purpose to bring us to Jesus Christ. Let me illustrate very quickly. If we're looking at the Old Testament, I already, always said, I already said that it always presupposed the gospel. There was never a time when God had in his mind the idea of doing these things in the Old Testament was the once and for all law. No, it always looked ahead to the new. So that you get things, so that you get things like shadows, but not the very image, etc., etc. Let me illustrate some of that. If we were looking at the idea of atonement in Hebrews 10, he takes away the first that he may establish the second. We might look at the annual Day of Atonement, but now every day is a Day of Atonement because of Jesus. We might look at animal sacrifices, and the Psalms are replete with animal sacrifice passages. But now we don't have those, and we don't practice those. They practiced them before the Law of Moses. They practiced them during the Law of Moses. But once Jesus becomes the sacrifice, they're gone. No animal sacrifices. God was not satisfied with it. It was not good enough. There was always a remembrance of sin, but there's not any longer. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 10. The worshipers were not perfect. They are now. If we looked at the temple system, I don't really have time to go into all of this, but all of this has changed. Two minutes. Now the body of the Christian is the actual temple, not the building Solomon built. Now Jesus is the high priest, not people in the lineage of Aaron. Now Christians are priests not Levitical priests. Now the heart of the Christian houses the, the uh, New Testament, the law of God, not the Ark of the Covenant. If we were to look at worship, now we worship on the first day of the week because that's the day of Jesus' resurrection, not the Sabbath day. Now we take the Lord's Supper in memorial to Jesus' body and His blood, not the memorial feast like Passover and uh, Hanukkah and so forth. Now... The prayers of Christians ascend directly up to God like the burning of incense, actual physical incense in the Old Testament, as Revelation 13 tells us. Now the Christian's heart is where the melody is made to God, Ephesians 5 verse 19, not those mechanical instruments. There are many things from the Old Testament that have passed away, many things that have been changed, and that's because God's will changed. He amended his will to allow for and include circumstances that change. I started to get into this. Let me close by saying it again. If you went and had a, if you had a will made, and you leave everything to your one child, Charlie, and then you have three more children, you probably are going to go back down to the lawyer and amend your will. Everything is not going to go to Charlie. It's going to go to Charlie and Betsy and whoever. You're going.
going to change it according to circumstances. God knew the circumstances. Jesus would die on the cross. Jesus would be the king. Jesus would have his people, etc., 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 etc. And when that happened, there was to be a change in the covenant, a change in the law. It was always presupposed. It was always allowed for. And one final thing that I'll say about that is this. Time, okay, final thing. One side is spiritual, one side is physical. I stole half a minute. Sorry. I've already given you at least a minute and a half. I I mean, man, thief. You see where I'm coming from, right? Like, I, I don't argue that the law has changed. I worship on Sunday just like he does. I don't work. I don't celebrate the Passover. I don't do that. But I follow the song. I keep with the Psalms. I include those things in my worship personally. And I think we're allowed as a group of people to continue in that for this benefit. Think about, man, how many of us out here can't sing a lick. I would, at one time I would consider myself kind of in that world. I, I can't sing for anything. But I practice it a little bit more, and I feel a little more confident that I can at least carry, like, a semi-tune in a bucket, uh, or thereabouts. But there are a lot of people out there that have a lot of gifts. And some of their gifts are being really good on the guitar, or being really good on the drums, or being really good dancers. And why doesn't God want them to offer that as a gift of worship to Him? I think if he didn't want that, he would have said, we don't need those instruments anymore. I just want it only in your heart. I get Ephesians 5.19, singing and making melody in your heart. Wholeheartedly agree. But I don't know why that excludes everything else from that. And so because we are commanded to use the Psalms, to exhort one another, to teach one another, and the Psalms commanded the use of instruments, I still believe we have New Testament authority to use mechanical instruments of worship in our praise and worship of God. Thank you for your attention very kindly. sacrifices have changed to the sacrifice of Jesus, etc. So if I go back and I say animal sacrifices seem to be a good thing, and I continue to do that, I'm ignoring the fact that something has changed about it. So saying the law, you, you recognize the law has changed, but then being, you know, going back and grabbing something from the old law, that has changed. Well, that defeats the point. Now, let me go to something that Wes said at the very end. 
People are talented, and they are talented. They can play instruments. My wife can, and she plays one beautifully. Would God not have said, don't do it, if he hadn't wanted us to do it? Well, my answer to that is, God has told us not to do it. And the way he's told us not to do it, if I can find this quickly, and I don't know that I can, but the way he's told us not to do it is by telling us what to do. So, yeah, there we go. So let me just say this. Think in terms of 2 Kings 5. Now, put in your mind for you to parallel 2 Kings 5 to Ephesians 5. In 2 Kings 5, just like in many passages, you might look at Leviticus chapter 10, for example. God is very specific about what he wants, whether that is a certain kind of fire that he wants burned or incense burned upon his matter. Or 2 Kings 5, whether that is go dip, go baptize yourself, whatever, in the river Jordan seven times. God gets very specific about things. And when God is specific, nothing else will, sacrifice, will satisfy God. He wants exactly what he has said to do. If we look at Hebrews 7, and I don't have time to go through this argument, but let's make it very simple. Jesus is our high priest. God was very specific, and the Hebrews writer points that out. He was very specific about the tribe of Levi for all priests, and one family, that of Aaron, for high priest. But wait a minute. Jesus is high priest, and Jesus came from Judah, not Levi. And we are priests, and we come from everywhere not Levi. So what has to happen? The writer of Hebrews says the law has changed. Now, the law has changed. What does that mean? That means when you have something specific in the Old Testament that is negated in the New or replaced or amended in the New, you have to go with that. It'd be like Charlie in my example before in the will. Charlie jumps up with an old copy of the will and says, hey, I get everything. And the other three kids go, well, no, we're in the will. No, but I was in the first will, you see. Thank you very much. And there's a lot more to be said. And believe it or not, we're going to flip this around. And I'm going to try to do what Wes did tonight. He's going to do what I tried, I tried to do tonight. And we're going to argue the other side of it. Now, that's difficult. But uh, we're going to do our best. And I hope that you're really looking at this and saying, wow, you know, there's a lot that goes into such a subject as this. Appreciate your attention. And Wes is going to offer an invitation at this time. tonight was going to be hard. Having to see him from the other side makes me think next week is going to be harder. Uh, but I tell you, I've learned a lot. I hope you've learned a lot. I try to be as true to what others use their argumentation and how they would answer it as I possibly could. I'll cheat by telling you when I saw Michael's slide up there of authority of silence, I went ahead and threw him a softball so he could get that one out there because that's kind of what kind of makes my argument fall flat on its face uh, from that perspective. Uh, so if I lost, it's because I gave up. Uh, <laughs> No, but, but that's the way it goes. Again, that's how hard it is to get, and, and that's how, because 
whatever, dedicates. All right, let me do what I'm supposed to do right now with the invitation. Man, the crowd that is here tonight, I just want to say thanks uh, for being here. The effort that was made by many of you who aren't here very often on Sunday night, really appreciate you maybe even more so than, than the rest of us are always here. But what I hope that we have seen tonight is the benefit of being together with one another and really diving into the Word of God. And the benefits that come from that and the things that we can learn by diving in and dealing with some really difficult Scripture. That what we see is that God has made it in such a way that, as the Proverbs say, Iron sharpens iron. I imagine all of us learned a little something tonight. Maybe there was a little something from both sides that is, like it was often described, a little pebble that has been put in our step. Where I've now got to think about something that I've always kind of held as this, and now I've just got to think. And we get to think this week. And then guess what? We get to come back on Sunday night next week. And see it again, except different things, because guess what? We didn't even touch the hem of the garment of this. And man, I don't know from you, but that time flew by for me. But here is the point of what we're trying to say as we open the invitation up. Is that, man, God knows what he's doing. And what a blessing we have to be here and to encourage and strengthen one another And the invitation is, why don't we do that more often? And so that's the invitation this evening. It's not about becoming Christian, because most people in this audience know what they need to do, and maybe they're ready, maybe they're not. But for most of us, it's, man, why aren't we sharpening each other every single week and the benefits that come from that? May God give us strength and may God give us wisdom and understanding to know what his will is, Ephesians 5, so that when we stand before him, we'll be ready uh, to enter in those gates. If you need the prayers in any way this evening of the congregation, won't you come now as we stand and as we sing?